Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Rita. <laughs> and here we are back with Val Luton again. This is Rita and Zoe talking about uh, really one of the most important figures in all of horror genre movies, I think. And we were talking about his last episodes, we are talking about what I consider to call his first phase of his career. Luton, as a producer, he didn't actually direct, he didn't actually supposedly make the film, but he was absolutely working hand in glove with the director. If he didn't write it originally, he rewrote a lot of the scripts. And he had some great writers who worked for him, but it always kind of had the Luton touch on them. Just to recap a little bit, um, we were talking about the you know, great films like uh, Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, Curse of the Cat People, right? What right. else? What are the Seventh Victim, Ghost Ship, yep, that uh, and Leopard Man. These were his first phase movies, and I have to say, I think that the plots and the writing, even the dialogue, sometimes tend to be kind of clunky. And I really put that down to Luton. But there's something special about the film as a whole, the zeitgeist of the film that raises it up, that makes up for that. Yeah, I you know agree. I mean? Yeah, there's a poetry to them that kind of transcends the parts. Yeah, it isn't, it isn't in the words. The poetry isn't in the words. It's in the, the totality. Mm-hmm. And there's something really special about the way that he represents people on screen. So his his main characters, but then the the real focus of being on unusual characters, whether it's because they're a minority or they're a woman from a, a cat <laughs> commune in old Europe or whatever. He focuses on sort of the the odd people in society, I guess. Well, being an immigrant himself, uh, a Russian immigrant, I think he felt that outsiderliness. Also being an artist in a world where being that sort of poetical artist is, doesn't fit very well. I think he, he felt those people a lot. We talked also about his, and I guess the people around him too, their concern about the voiceless you know, because he does use a lot of black actors to the full extent that he can use them, that he would be allowed to use them in that very segregated time. And it, it adds a lot of richness to his films as well that I, I really enjoy because I feel like that they're real people and we're not just seeing some sort of projection of, okay, well, you're just the servant or whatever. And so my top Luton films are going to come from phase one. I mean, let's just be right up front, just projecting it there and I think yours are too aren't they yeah absolutely there's a couple of really good especially moments in some of the later films that kind of harken mm-hmm. back to the original ones but as as whole pieces of art or whole pieces of work yeah the first phase of his career is absolutely going to be where all the best ones are yeah that's the golden age of yeah. Luton. and so then after the golden age I, I kind of break his career down to as I said before four phases. So we're going to try to whip through phases two through four for you today and and wrap up the the podcast. Basically, uh, phase two is his his attempt to break out of genre and move into prestige filmmaking and social uh, issues filmmaking. Then phase three, he gets back into the genre again, but this time his vision and his uh, attempts to make a higher class horror movie is supported by his star, Boris Karloff. So we'll have some things to say about Boris Karloff, and that'll be a fun 
a fun little section. And then we'll wind up with phase four, which is really the least interesting, where he is cut loose from RKO and he does three films for the phase four that one for each different major studio, Paramount, MGM, and Universal. And then we'll wrap up with giving you our strongest recommendations that we think are his best films, although actually our recommendation, you should watch all the phase one in order, right? Yeah. But we'll tell you which ones we think are our three best just because. That's what we do on the podcast. Okay, so let's get started. Basically where we left off last time is we covered the last film of phase one, which was his gentle, beautiful fantasy called Curse of the Cat People. And as he said, the only curse is in the title. And I think the only cat is a little tiny kitten. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but there were people in it. Yeah. So that's true. Simone Simone's in it, so, so there's another kitten face in the film. Yeah, a little, little tiny kitten face, which really is a great segue into phase two. So in 1944, near the end of the Second World War, we're not at the end yet, got another year to go, but uh, it's uh, wartime uh, filmmaking was at its peaks. A lot of propaganda, a lot of pro-America. So what Luton uh, wants to do is he wants to break out of the horror genre, which they allow him to do. He decides he wants to make his prestige, that they call prestige films. That would be something like A Gone with the Wind. High ticket value, uh, sweeping, grand, and usually they were period films. Mm. So this is he's going to have this in his next film, Mademoiselle Fifi in 1944. It's going to be a uh, historical film. It's based on a story by Guy de Maupassant, a short story. And it's about the occupation of France by Germany, huh. which is exactly what was happening in Europe at the time. Right. So it's a great parallel, but it takes place in the 1800s. And so the uh, nice segue between the films is the star is going to be our tender savage, Simone 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 Simone, and she play and Simone Simone plays a beautiful, virtuous. Lower class sort of, well, she, she's a washerwoman, right? She, a laundress. Yeah, she works in the laundry. Yeah, she works in the laundry, laundress. She's sober and beautiful and, and just smart and practical. So the film pretty much opens on a, a carriage full of people. And all these people are pretty much bourgeois. Um, nobody's, we might consider them almost upper class, but I think in France they were really considered bourgeois. They weren't aristocracy or nobility at all and she's in there and they're all like real sniffy at her well she's the only one who brought a basket full of food uh for the trip and everybody else it's kind of weird like well all these people they have servants i guess to take care of that right and anyway um so she's the only one she's got all this yummy chicken chicken and wine and delicious stuff in her basket and uh, nobody has any other food and they're hungry and so she gets out her basket and she's chomping away and they're all like looking at it, the food because they're hungry she's oh would you like some chicken and so she serves around the food to everybody it doesn't make it makes some of the people like her and some of the other people just they still have total disdain but they're willing to eat her food so uh, i'm just going to recap the the um plot real fast because it's pretty simple and then we can get into the themes is that okay yeah so essentially, uh, they stop off at a hotel, and there is a uh, German contingent stationed there, and in the hotel are the officers, and there's one really super good-looking one who's also super evil <laughs> and super bad, and kind of, he appears to be kind of sexually creepy, 
but he's very particular. He's very nice in the old-fashioned sense that he likes everything just a certain way and he's interested in her and the reason he's interested is that out of the whole group she's the only one who isn't willing to bend to him she's the one who prizes her frenchness and and, and basically has the patriotism and and the courage to assert um, her her own dignity even though she's the one of the lower class, because all the bourgeois people are like, oh, you know, officer, come and have drinks with us. Oh, yeah, oh, you're so funny, officer. You know, just really sucking up to him. So he's decided that he wants to, he wants to bring her to her knees, essentially. And he does this via various mechanisms, some very good scenes, I thought, where they're having dinner. And so, first of all, she won't go have dinner with him. And then, basically, he won't let anybody leave anybody leave until she has dinner with him and so everyone puts pressure on her and just like with the food thing she gives over to the common good and says all right i'll have dinner with him and that's it because i you know i'll do it for the common good so she has dinner with him and he's all like just getting creepier and and it's like it's not like he's actually sexually attracted to her you really get that dynamic of just using male power yeah. and sexuality as a way to just dominate. Right, exactly. Not out of desire yeah. or lust or anything like that, which the other soldiers seem to have. And I think that's why they call him Mademoiselle Fifi because he's not, he doesn't appear to be sexual or also may be an indication that they're hinting at homosexuality on his part. Right. And so this is a one where it seems like they're using... Right, so he's the titular Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle Fifi. Mademoiselle Fifi, exactly. That's his nickname. Exactly. It, so it escalates to the point where he's going to rape her and she resists. And as we said, we will spoil films. And essentially, she ends up stabbing him in the end and triumphing over the uh, German oppression by asserting her own dignity by this act. So the film is meant as a metaphor for the French resistance under the Nazis. That's really the nub of the plot. There's other things that happens and other relationships. You can watch the film, and it is an interesting film. Mm-hmm. But the, the key thing is, is that this is really what Luton wanted, was this to be a hurrah to the French resistance, to the, uh, the people fighting underground there in France, and, and the world over, but um, I think specifically France. So um, it was positive in that way for him, uh, for the studio. Like, okay, yay, this is something that the government's going to like. And the, the studio's very hand-in-glove with the government at this time in terms of if there wasn't outright censorship, there was a lot of pressure and um, that amounted to censorship in terms of what people could portray. And you never could portray a German as a decent human being or as a person who might have had some humanity to them mm. they always had to be bad that's just world war one and world war two that's how it was only afterwards do you get your trial at nuremberg and whatnot right exactly and and you're reassessing these people as human beings same thing with japan so basically this was if you could call this a prestige film this is a prestige film it is a historical there's uh, some beautiful costumes but the the issue was when Luton went in to find out what his budget would be, now remember, all of his other films were $150,000 budget, and he always came in under budget or within the budget, and these were small genre pictures. So for his prestige film, 
he got an extra $50,000. Oh, wow. I know. He was livid. He's like, oh my, how can I make this huge historical film on that much money? Well, he had to. And you can see that the film is small in yeah. terms of the scope, the visual scope. The costumes are all good. Not amazing. Um, they have the, the inn. There's a couple, there's like four sets. Yeah. yeah, there's a church, there's a bell tower. I mean, there's really not a lot to it. And it has a bigger cast than he is used to using. So he did expand there. But and it's longer, right? There's horses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the horses cost money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, he had a real struggle with, with getting this to work. And um, I have to say, he did, he did a decent job, but it's no prestige film. It feels kind of claustrophobic. It does. It's also something about like uh, the bluntness of the themes and the propaganda, I think, too. Yeah. The speeches. I mean, there are yeah. speeches about the French liberty and yeah. patriotism. And yeah, I think I think if any one or two of the other elements had sort of been changed to be more successful, if, if any part of it had worked better, yeah. oh, the overall effect would have been a lot better. The writing wasn't quite as good. Simone Simone is great. She's really, mm-hmm. you know, very uh, alive. And the German officer is really good, uh, Mademoiselle Fifi. Yeah. Um, definitely. It's very chilling. Very chilling. And without that extra addition of some kind of humanity, that's harder to do. Mm-hmm. Because then you just become a cartoon. And I think he, I think he does it very well. It's, it's interesting that Simone Simone, she's supposed to be very desirable which i think she's a beautiful how could she not be desirable right but they they felt like she was not desirable enough so hmm. they she had to wear falsies what's falsies are, are breasts yeah forms yeah it's <laughs> funny padded padded uh, whatever padding on her breasts those are called falsies and so she had to wear those every day and she made fun of them and everything <laughs> so to make her be more curvy because she was too thin right for a peasant girl you know well for an attractive woman i suppose anyway <laughs> And uh, so, anyway, this the film was stressful for Luton. And, you know, he did have a dream that he would make these special things. Honestly, I'll just say right out, I don't think he had it in him to do prestige films. He did assist David O. Selznick, as we said in our, our earlier episodes, like with movies like Gone with the Wind, which were. But I don't think he had that real breadth of vision. Well, maybe he had a breadth of vision, but I don't think he had the ability to allow really good writers and really good other filmmakers to weigh in enough. I think he was too much of a control freak and he himself did not have the writing ability to write something that would be amazing. Mm. You know, to that would f- that would fulfill that would carry the weight of that big of a picture. That's how I that's what I think. That's why he was so good in the small genres. I agree with you about the writing. And I think too you can see his tendency in the early movies to be extremely atmospheric, poetical, existential. Mm-hmm. And like in The Seventh Victim, for example, that movie is kind of like all over the place and you're like, don't really end up with a clear idea of like concretely what was supposed to, you know, whatever. And so I think that the restrictions actually put on those uh, predispositions make better films. Yeah. And it's interesting because he's working with his, one of his regular guys on this, his, the two, after Jacques Turner left, um, he worked regularly with Robert Wise and Mark Robeson. And Robert Wise directed this, so it's mm-hmm. one of his regular guys who did it. But it just, it's, 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 it's fine. It's interesting, it's fine, but it's not anywhere close to his earlier ones. And then he moved on to a second film 
in this uh, same year, 1944, which was directed by his other guy, Mark Robeson. So they seem to be switching off. It was called Youth Runs Wild. (laughs) And I mean, again, it speaks to my heart. Oh, wait a minute. I should also mention that at some point while he's making Mademoiselle Fifi or after Mademoiselle Fifi, he has his first heart attack. Mm. Now, through this, they found out that Luton had a bad, he had a bad heart. He had a heart problem, which will end up dogging him. Now, he's not that old, and he ends up being, um, beginning to deteriorate, I think. At, at this point, you can kind of almost see in the films that the, the energy, the, the, the hold he had was not as, as strong as it was. Because remember, he was born in 1904, and this is 1944, so he's only 40 years old. Right. And he's already starting to have heart troubles. So um, this is going to be a theme. He's, In fact, I have to say, he had a pretty big heart attack here. I mean, he was in the hospital for a few weeks. And um, given a man who is fighting to get out and get back to work, that's a pretty long time. And he does not want to be down and out. And he, I'm sure he, he didn't take care of himself. He didn't rest. He didn't go on vacation. He probably didn't eat very well, I would imagine. And he's always at his desk working really hard. So um, it was his lifestyle as well as probably something chronic that was in him physically that uh, led him to start having heart attacks so young. It's really, really sad. So he has a, uh, finishes Mademoiselle Fifi. He's gone for a while. Then he comes back. But within the same year, he starts Youth Runs Wild. And again, this speaks to his good heart, I think. I mean, <laughs> they do mean it that way. <laughs> but his good heart uh, in that he wanted to make something meaningful. He'd come out of these, these genre films and he wanted to make something meaningful, but more blatantly meaningful. Yeah, like a social film yeah. instead of, you know, what he was doing before, which was working on a very different level. Yeah, a very deep level, actually. Yeah. So he brings it, wants to bring it all up to the surface, and that really doesn't help. This film is one that came out of the fact that I and I didn't know this but during the war because because so many men were drafted and then there were also women who you know volunteered for the army uh the factories were going empty and they needed workers so that was when Rosie the Riveter uh the iconic Rosie the Riveter happened and women were just going to work in droves and so there was no one at home anymore uh to take care of the kids when they got off school and and in those days, they didn't have boys and girls clubs. They didn't have anything in place. It was always, you know, the family just took care of the kids. So there was no social n- net there. And these uh, teenagers were, they were running wild. And I mean, it was a national problem where the, the delinquency, they called it juvenile delinquency back then, but the crime rate of juveniles was huge. I mean, because they would just go and they'd hang around pool halls. And then they'd be there, and really, generally, pool halls were populated by liminal ne'er-do-well criminal types so they were getting in with these people or they were bored and they would do all kinds of vandalism and then stealing and it was it was actually a serious problem in this country Mm -hmm. which I didn't really realize yeah me neither yeah because I mean the police couldn't keep up with it and really when it's got a root cause of disaffection of some sort then you have police can't do anything with that they're not made to address those kind of issues so there was a really interesting story, a young woman, kind of like some of the young women today that I'm so proud of. What is it, Greta Thunberg? Gre- Thunberg, and yeah. Thunberg, and you know, young women like that. There's a woman named, a young woman named Ruth Clifton. She was a, a teenager, and she was uh, lived in Moline, Illinois, and she was just a regular teenager, but she said she saw what was going on, 
with her peers. And she said, we don't have any place to go. There is no place safe where kids can go and be occupied and do basically wholesome things. So she actually went to her city council and made a proposal to get money to create a youth recreation center. And she spearheaded it uh, along with other, you know, got other teens involved and they became the committee and they actually ran this youth recreation center. They got the money, Mm -hmm. they set it up, they had, uh, they set up a dance hall where you could have dances and they had a soda fountain and they had games and all kinds of stuff. So people could come after school was safe. They set their own rules up. And That's pretty amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. And they said, well, you know, if you do this, you can't come back and, you know, you have to, you know, you have to do this, that, and the other, you know, just basically to keep order, keep people acting, you know, behaving correctly and, and make it safe for people to really enjoy themselves. The crime rate decreased hugely. Hmm. So it became an enormous um, movement actually across the country. Big story, everything. And they set up a lot of these recreation centers and it really helped a lot. Hmm. But Val Luton, his concern was, yeah, this is good, but it's not getting at the root causes of juvenile delinquency generally, which he felt was parental parental abuse was one of them, and probably poverty and other other things like that. And he um, he wanted to get to that. I think it's very interesting. I, I'm not quite sure where the connection. Did he feel he was abused when he was young? I mean, his aunt was very rough but she was also loving too and he had a relate so i don't know exactly where this perception comes from on his part yeah maybe he just had a very good analysis of things because it's really true that poverty and the economic systems that keep things in place are at the heart of most social ills in my opinion anyway right well he was considered with parental abuse toward children yeah. so he must obviously see that and, and back then i mean it was fine to smack your kid i mean when right. i was a kid you, you spanked your kid my dad used a wooden spoon or a pancake turner to spank Ouch. us. Yeah. Or, you know, he'd, he'd whip our legs with uh, belts, a belt. I mean, now my dad didn't beat us so that we were bruised or anything. Mm-hmm. But parents did do that. And, and and if you went that far, probably the community would kind of go, oh, you shouldn't be doing it. But it, you had to go really, really far for the community to do anything to intervene. And even then, they might not. Yeah. You know? So there was a big sense that parents know what's best or they'll do whatever well they own you yeah yeah your, your parents own their, they have the rights to you mm-hmm. essentially so that was true at that time mm. so he wanted to get to that and address it and the studio didn't want that they wanted the feel-good movie and they got ruth clifton they hired her to come and be a consultant on the film and val Luton was happy to have her there i mean he liked her and they talked but he wanted to do more he wanted to say this yeah these centers are nice and they're good but they're not enough and we need to look at the underlying issues. So he had a huge fight with the studio. The government came in and they were monitoring his filmmaking and looking at the scenes. Wow. And I don't know, the film itself is, would yeah. you say? Yeah, I mean, it's poorly cut. Yeah. Which. Well, the reason it's poorly sense. cut is they made him cut a bunch of stuff out. Right. <laughs> in fact, um, Dickie Moore, who was a, a, right. a really, really big star when he was a tiny when he was a real little child uh we saw him in the marlena dietrich movie though yeah. um uh what was it uh white zombie what was the name of the movie a blonde blonde venus <laughs> not white zombie <laughs> <laughs> that's another movie there is a movie called white zombie right so i'm not crazy but that was not a marlena dietrich movie 
Okay, so it was Blonde Venus. He was he was her little boy that she he was bathing in the tub. He was very cute. He was in the R Gang, the Spanky and R Gang movies. Yeah. I don't think you've ever seen The Little Rascals. We've watched some Have you? when okay. I was younger. I loved them when I was a kid. I loved them. And anyway, he was in that. And then when he got to be a teenager, as so often happened in those days, there was not a transition. The studio certainly didn't help you. Studios are pretty nasty back then. But anyway, uh, they probably are now too. But So he got smaller and smaller and smaller parts. And then he ended up getting uh, a part in this film. And it's too bad because he had a, a fairly large part. But he ended up being cut out of it because his part was the part that Val Luton really wanted was he was being abused by his father. And he's probably like 15 in this movie. or He's almost a man. Young adult, yeah. Yeah, young adult. And his father is wailing on him at the end of their, their arc, he actually, in self-defense, kills his father. Hmm. And they were like, no way. We're not having no patricide in our movies. <laughs> and they made Luton cut it all out. The most intense arc is cut out of the movie. So it's just kind of like... It's the, a the, weak the, film, yeah. Yeah, the stuffing is left on this. So I thought that that was, was pretty interesting. And the only other little bit I would say about this is, in our earlier films, one of the major leading ladies was Jean Brooks. And she's the woman who plays the mysterious sister in mm. uh, The Seventh Victim. And so she's in a, a number of his films. And this is her last film with Luton. And it's one of her very last films. And it's very sad because she had a very severe alcohol problem. Mm. And uh, she was a v- really, really bad alcoholic. And uh, she would, like, fall asleep on the set all the time. And mm. Luton really tried to support her and help her stay with the picture and, and finish the picture. Well, for himself, too, but also... Because he did care about her, and that which is was kind of sad. So, um, and that so that's a phase of his phase two, which you can see is not. We're not recommending any of these movies. Like, oh, run and see them. If you're completist, they're worth seeing, and they're not bad. No, this Youth Runs Wild is pretty bad. Okay, it is. I agree. Yeah, I, I, it's I, well intentioned, but bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, you know, it, sort of my boredom had has worn off in retrospect. But you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of boring. Mademoiselle Fifi was okay. All right, now we're going to move into Phase Three, which is a more exciting phase. So he's still an RKO, and now we're going to be moving into 1945. So this is the last year of the war, as I'm sure we all know. A really terrible thing that happens in 1945 as he's moving into the next year that is that his aunt Ala Nazimova dies. Now Nazimova, as you remember from our previous episode, when he lost a plagiarism lawsuit and thought he would never want to work again, Nazimova, she pulled him up by his bootstraps for him and got him back on the road to working again. Kind of tough love. She was very supportive and very loving, but very tough. And so she really was the strength, I think, underlying him in his life. And she she passed away in 1945, right when he's moving into this third phase of his career. And it was a blow, an emotional blow that he really never recovered from. So that, the heart attack the previous year, his... Unsuccessful films. Unsuccessful films, his his aunt dying. Yeah, the Youth Runs Wild was not successful. That must have been so disappointing to him, like... I, I wouldn't be surprised if he felt very bitterly about it. Well, he it. wanted his name taken off the credits mm. because he was so mad about the way they, they uh, boulderized his movie and they wouldn't let him. They said, no, your name has, has marquee value. We're not taking it <sighs> off. We're, you know, we're going to put it on there that you were the producer. So they did. But things are going to start to look up in 1945 because they want him to do 
the Universal Pictures, we're back to that again, yeah. formula. And Universal Pictures, um, their formula of going from like Dracula and Frankenstein, which are wonderful films. What, highly recommend those films. Yeah, we watched them in preparation for this. Yeah, and they were great. They were, um, yes, yeah, fairly simplistic. Yeah, you know, but the the way the imagery is created is, it really is iconic. I mean, mm-hmm. that word is overused today, but they they are iconic. And so, um, but over the period from 1931 when these films came out, slowly but surely, of course, erosion occurs. And they began to be, you know, they wanted to, they put in more comedy. They took out a lot of the scares. Then they just wanted to have, kind of like the Marvel Universe today, they wanted to have as many different popular characters in the movie at the same time so that... Crossovers, yeah. yeah. all the crossovers. And so they, they started calling these monster rallies. And so they had so many mon- different monsters in it. And at this point, Boris Karloff, who had made his mark, his big, big debut as a film star in Frank... Frankenstein. He had become amazingly a, a top star, and it didn't happen until he was in his forties. And so now he's getting into his into his early sixties, uh, and he's like a big, big star. Well, he his contract with Universal was up, or he left Universal anyway, and he was looking around for a different place to work because he did not want to do any more of these stupid monster rally things or these dumb. He wanted to do. He wanted to be a real actor. And you can see his sincerity. He's not necessarily the best actor, but he's so sincere. And he really puts his all into wanting to do a character. Mm-hmm. And I really, really respect him for that. Yeah, he's totally what you would say is a character actor. And he yeah. has that air of specialness. And and also, even though he'll often play either monsters or like an evil guy or a bad guy in some way, you also still really like him. Yeah, you can t- tell he's good in you know, yeah. his core. <laughs> you can feel and, it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have to just do an aside here and say I just have the softest spot for Boris Karloff. I adore him. Just adore him. I mean, I've heard so many wonderful things about how kind he was and he always would stop in every movie and have tea time high tea because his real name was He's edward genteel <laughs> yeah his, his real name was edward pratt and he uh, was from england read poetry and uh, literature and i mean he's just the kind of person that i adore and he was very kind apparently in fact he would have dinner at val luton's house all the time and his uh, son called him uncle boris that would hold his hand and they would go down and see the donkey together and it just sounds like he was uh, just wonderful although he was married five times so it just makes me wonder that he had a little trouble in that area but the reason I adore him before that before I knew all that wonderful stuff about him was he's the voice the narrator in the original the Grinch that sold Christmas that came out when I was about five and I saw it on tv and just I never will forget little Cindy Lou Who who was no more than two or the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day, you know, <laughs> and just the way he had that voice, that kind of lispy voice. So I'm pre-possessed to love anything that Boris Karloff is in just because it's him. So take that as you will. That's my bias. So what happens is, is that he's looking around and unbeknownst to Val Luton, they hire him, Charles Kerner and uh, RKO Brass, they snap up Boris Karloff because he's such a big star and they're going to put him in the Val Luton movies and they're thinking, oh, yippee, because he's been in these Universal movies, so he's going to want the same thing. 
<laughs> he's going to want to do the same thing. And this way they can put pressure on Luton to make the kind of horror monster movies that they want. So Luton hears that Boris Karloff is going to be, or I, I, I'm not sure, I've heard different stories, either he's told and then he goes to meet him, or he's in a meeting and Boris Karloff, they go, oh, ta-da, Boris Karloff walks in. I'll bet he knew before. I mean, and apparently he wore his dog puke tie <laughs> to the meeting because he's like, oh my God, not, oh, it's a nightmare. This is an absolute nightmare. And so Boris Karloff comes in and he's so nice. Oh, Mr. Luton, I'm so pleased to meet you. I love your work. I am so excited about working together with you on the kinds of films you make. <laughs> and, and, and the brass is all like, what? <laughs> They're all like gobsmacked because this is not what they wanted and not what they expected. And Luton's like, Aww. what? I'm sorry, where my dog puked tie? <laughs> and then he ended up like going over to Luton's house all the time and having dinner. And they, were really, they worked really closely together hmm. on the next three films. That are phase three. And actually, I think what I'll do is I'll just name them in order, and then we can just talk about them, you know, maybe give some specifics about them. So the first one is The Body Snatcher, then Isle of the Dead, and then Bedlam are the three. And these take place between 1945 and 1946, with uh, all starring Boris Karloff in various roles. They're definitely the second tier best films. Absolutely. And Boris Karloff has a lot to do with that, I think. Yeah, he does. He does. Um, So basically, The Body Snatcher, of course, is the first one. I don't know. Well, how do you feel? Uh, Do you have a a favorite among these three? I would say The Body Snatcher, it didn't really grip me initially. And then the ending, I was kind of a fan of. Yeah. Whereas Bedlam, the last one, I got really excited initially because I was, we can explain more why, but it was... uh, exciting to be like ooh, is this like really prescient social commentary and also <laughs> boris karloff i love it and, and then boris karloff is like a fun character in that one and has a lot of witty lines and yeah. stuff so i was like ooh, this one's well written but then in the middle is isle of the dead which we ended up watching maybe right on the eve of um, the COVID-19 pandemic oh, right, stay-at-home right. order. And so that was really funny to me, and it made me engage with it probably way more than I would have otherwise yeah. um, to be like, oh, it's so funny we're watching this movie about this this quarantined group of people on an island <laughs> during a pit, and they're having a pandemic. And there's there's this long hand-washing montage in it that <laughs> yeah. I kind of adore. I don't think that exists in an, another Okay, film. well, let's talk about them specifically because okay. it'll get too confusing. Okay. So, okay, so the body snatcher... Uh, Boris Karloff was excited because he's not a monster. He's a body snatcher in this one. And it's based on, a, uh, adapted from a Robert Louis Stevenson book. So again, it has its feet in the classics. Again, Karloff would love this. Luton loved this. They had they had it adapted. And, um, and the only reason it got made is because Karloff was like, oh, I love that idea, when the, the studio bosses thought he would just shoot it down because it's not a monster thing. Now let me ask you, are they still giving Val Luton the titles for the films? No. Okay. No. Because now, like, The Body Snatcher and um, Isle of the Dead and Bedlam actually were, they actually do reflect the movies. And yeah. And did come up with them, yeah. So The Body Snatcher of 1945 stars Boris Karloff as the body snatcher, and it's based on the Burke and Hare murders of 1828. In that 1828 in Scotland, Burke and Hare, two different guys, they murdered a bunch of people 
in order to sell the corpses to the medical school so that they could do dissection. And so a lot of these people were called resurrectionists. They would go to graveyards and they would dig people up, which was totally illegal. And people didn't want to have their bodies dissected. I'm sure anybody listening might have reasons that they wouldn't want that to be the use of their remains. But it was much more intense at that time because people believed that at the end of the world, we were going to be resurrected in your own body. And if your body wasn't in one piece or your body would been cremated or whatever, you were going to be in trouble because you wouldn't have a body to be resurrected, which I won't get into that. I think that's, there's a lot of logical problems with that, but much less the fact that corpses just decompose anyway. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's a point for you. Um, So, uh, so there were these people called resurrectionists who would actually dig people up and kind of resurrect them. So that was illegal, but, and, and the law varies over time. So I'm just going to give a general overview, but it was okay though to dissect bodies of convicted murderers or criminals, I should say, not just murderers, people were hung. So highwaymen were hung, murderers were hung. So somebody's hung, they would take the body off the gibbet, but that didn't offer enough bodies. And there was a huge, huge market for them. So there would be a lot of competition to get those bodies such that they would wait at the foot of the, of the, uh, of the gibbet and they would rush and fight over the body and try to pull the body (laughs) off. I know, I know. It was crazy. So so basically this is market forces at work here. So Burke and Hare saw the need in the market and figured that they could fulfill it by basically killing people. So they would make friends with various people, low-class people, and suffocate them, murder them, and then go and uh, sell the body. And the people they were selling it to, a famous doctor who actually got off, kind of looked the other way. They just didn't ask. Don't ask, don't tell kind of deal. Eventually, they were caught. One of them, I'm not sure which, but one of them testified against the other, kind of turned state's evidence. And so one of them ended up being hung and the other one got off. And the doctor hmm. never got prosecuted. And But there was a big uproar over this, this thing. So anyway, this movie based on those real events so Boris Karloff, needless to say, and you can tell immediately just by looking at him, is the one who's uh, digging up or killing right. eventually and bringing them to a doctor who's played by Henry Danielle, who is an actor I really like. Um, Henry Danielle. Uh, so Henry, he's a tortured doctor here who has a checkered past, shall we say, that Boris Karloff knows about. So Karloff is always blackmailing him into buying the bodies and giving him money and so forth. And uh, there's a young doctor right. who's really our surrogate, and he's played by the blandest person. I'm just so uninterested in this guy. I don't even know his name. I haven't even bothered to, to remember the actor's name. <laughs> I think to- that's fine. <laughs> totally bland. Uh, and he's our surrogate, though, and he's the one who's uh, uh, tasked with taking the bodies in, and he begins to suspect that there's an issue here, and he begins to question uh, what Karloff is doing, and he brings forth the moral qualms. What I thought was really interesting is that originally the executives were really trying to foist, as I said, this formula onto Luton. So then they came up. This was the surprise. This is the one they said, well, we've cast the famous Bella Lugosi as the young doctor. Now, Bella Uh. Lugosi was in his early 60s. (laughs) And he's like, 
what? <laughs> we can't have him play the young doctor. <laughs> That's so funny. So they're going to Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi for marquee value, but they're going to totally miscast Bella Lugosi. So, uh, I mean, yeah, Bella Lugosi. So what they did was, what Val Luton did was he wrote another part. <laughs> so there's a new part. who's kind of an Igor part, if you will, isn't it? He's basically the caretaker of the hospital, and he sweeps the floor and he, you know, cleans things up, and he... And he's he, ominous. <laughs> he's ominous, because he begins also to suspect something is going on. He goes to Boris Karloff's character and says, Hey, I know what you're doing. I know you're stealing bodies. And wants to blackmail him. He wants money. So it's a great scene. It's the best scene in the movie, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. They are uh, negotiating, and Karloff is all niceness. and says, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. I understand. And he gives him some money, and, and then he says... Have some whiskey. Have some whiskey. And so he gets him a little bit drunk, and he ends up going to strangle him. And what's so interesting is, in your reality, these two elderly men are like I said, in their early 60s. And, well, Karloff was, you can tell, he's he's somewhat agile, but he's kind of stiff. But Lugosi really had bad back problems, and he was mm-hmm. in a lot of pain, which is why he became an addict later in life, as, as so many actors seem to, where he medicated um, an injury and then became addicted mm-hmm. and, and, and continued to have chronic pain. So he was continuing to medicate. And he was really in a lot of pain, and he was very fragile. And Karloff was aware of this, and so he didn't want to hurt him. And so Luton says, well, we'll have doubles, you know, do the fight scene, because they're going to have a fight scene. And and the studio says, no, you can't what? have doubles. We have to have these stars. We have to, They have to do it themselves. What? So I, when I watch it, yeah, they're doing some of it, but meh, I think I see some doubles in there. I, I'm pretty sure I did, didn't you? Yeah, I like um, they like, go over like, the like, back like, of the like, chair. Yeah, when they go over yeah. backward in the chair or they roll around, I think he snuck yeah. some doubles in there a little, a little bit. But watch the scene and the way it's cut. It's cut very quickly, very short shots. And um, so when you see their faces, it's more like almost like a pose. Like he's leaning over him and he's going to push him over in the chair. And then it cuts and then it cuts. And then they're on the floor and then they're rolling around. And um, it's a very short fight too. Yeah. But it is tense. It is tense. Karloff was very careful with, with Lugosi because he, he could be so easily hurt. And I think that stinks that the studio wasn't uh, no kidding. caring about their... No worried about liability. Anyway, that film ended up being a big hit. A big, big hit. Because, first of all, because Karloff starred in it, it really surprised the studio that this was such a big hit. Do you want to give away the ending, though? Well, well, not the ending ending, but what happens with, with Lugosi? Because I thought that was the best part. You go ahead. Okay. Well, what happens is, is he ends up uh, overwhelming Lugosi because, you know, and takes back his money and kills him and puts him in the tub so that when the young doctor comes to get the next body, it's Lugosi in there. And so he knows he's been murdered. And so that, that to me are the, the most, to me, those are the most salient and interesting points of the movie. There is a bunch of other stuff. There's a, uh, the doctor was in love with a woman and there's a, a little girl he's trying to help. And I mean, there are other characters and other things going on in the film. But I think that that to me is really the crux of what drives this film and makes it really interesting. Yeah, I like this, the sort of Faustian sensibility of it mm. and sort of the Karloff, 
even though he's maybe he's more creepy than he is threatening for most of the film how he sort of like draw he like draws the doctors into his gra- like gravity um the gravity of his ne'er well doing and <laughs> i think luton touched on one of his favorite themes which is medical scientific understanding versus it's not in the whole film but at the end karloff he sees the ghost of a guy he murdered in the carriage and he's driven into terror and then he drives off the side of a cliff and that's sort of the end of the film spoiler and so he doesn't do it a whole lot but the supernatural the sort of like metaphysical mm. does come in juxtaposed yeah yeah that's that's a good point also the your point about Karloff and you will see this in all the films even though there are pretty large casts in some of them like especially Isle of the Dead I thought he's the weight at the center he's the fulcrum of the film in terms of the weight of his personality and also the way the film is written it always circles around his actions and his personality as the character in the film so he truly is the star here it's definitely a star vehicle for him even though there are a lot of other things going on I appreciate it. it. It also, even though he's not a monster in it, he's a human monster, so it takes it feels kind of grittier than a regular monster picture. Yeah, absolutely, because it, it definitely this is based on people who really existed. Yeah, and I I, I do love Carl creeping around, kind of spidery and ugh. the dark circles under his eyes. Yeah, 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 he's he's very very creepy. Now this film it was a big hit, and it was really a particularly huge hit in England. And what's so interesting mm-hmm. is that probably the next two films, but this film in particular became the stylistic template for the 1950s and 60s Hammer horror films. I don't think you've ever seen any of those, but it's a for those of you who know, those were such a genre. It's when England sort of started its own genre horror, and again, low budget, but they starred people like Christopher Lee. So they had like their their Boris Karloff, if you will, a Christopher Lee, and couple, there are a couple of like. Karloff Lugosi kind of stars in England. They were good actors and they became known for these kind of films. And they, so they, they could be very thespian in these films and they, act, they play the vampire or the mad scientist or whatever it is they're, they're doing. Even though those films tended, some of them were in black and white and some are in color, but the atmosphere, the look, the way in which the film was put together hugely was influenced by this template of uh, the body snatcher. Hmm. So it became very influential in Eng- English filmmaking. That's really interesting. We'll have to, you know, watch a couple and, and if, see if you can see. I, I, I don't know specifically which ones I should choose. Uh, I'm not a real aficionado of the Hammer horror films. I enjoy, I enjoy the earlier ones in particular. But we could do a, a short addendum if we do that and, and let you know what Zoe thinks. That'd be interesting. Because, I mean, just thinking about the body snatcher, I'm not sure exactly what the template is, even though I could point out some elements. I think it's the sense of the way the story is put together and the way it builds so that the evil emerges over time and who's Mm. kind of responsible for the evil. And it does tend to be kind of, I guess this body snatching thing and having those bodies in the vat, which you do get to see, the physical horror of it Mm. uh, is definitely part of it. And again, it's, it's a zeitgeist. It's a feel. And the body snatcher is something different. It really is different than anything I'd seen before. It's got kind of a German expressionist element to it in terms of not full-on expressionism, but there's the slanted camera. There's the the sharp, dark shadows. Um, there's the creepingness of, uh, of Karloff. Very specific kind of aesthetic. 
and they adopted it in, into the Hammer Horror film. That's neat. I think you hit something with the uh, body horror, too. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to talk about it. We can move on, but right, I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. It's physically creepy. Mm-hmm. Now, then, then uh, 1945, uh, the same year, they did another film with Karloff, uh, Isle of the Dead, which, you know, you really liked. You had a good point about the pandemic. Yeah, so so it hit home for me. I think it was way more interesting than it would have been otherwise. But it takes place in Greece during some kind of armed conflict. An officer ends up going with another soldier over to this island that's basically a morgue island. And then there are other people there. And then they realize that there's a illness going around. And so they quarantine themselves on the island. Right. And so there's a, it's like a, a, a closed room Agatha Christie murder mystery in a way. Yeah. And uh, there's the the hand washing scene, <laughs> which we love. Montage. Everybody's hands washing. Yeah. <laughs> and Kar- Karloff plays uh, a military uh, officer who is enforcing the quarantine, essentially. Even though people may die, people want to leave, people are being killed. Yeah, they're being actually murdered. Yeah. As well as, well as f- fighting the illness, they're being actually murdered. And so, but he will not let them off the island despite this because he's basically, they're on lockdown. And so it brings in, it brings in a couple of those themes, as such as in Ghost Ship with the rigid authoritarian figure um, and the corruption of power. And then it brings in... But is it corruption? That's the question. Because in Ghost Ship, it definitely was. Right. But in this one, what is it? You know, is he being unreasonable in that he doesn't want the virus to spread? Well, I don't know if it's a virus, but the disease to spread? Being re- or is he being responsible? I mean, I don't know. I think he is at first. The film has a lot of people in it, and they're doing a lot of things. But the the crux of it is, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to give this away now, is there's a woman who is, <laughs> so funny because it's such foreshadowing. I mean, it's like foreshadowing, like sticking a spike in your eye kind of right. foreshadowing, where she is terrified of being buried alive. Right. <laughs> so what happens to her? Oh, they think she's dead because of the disease, and she gets buried alive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is a great scene, actually. Yeah, because she ends up screaming in this in this coffin, and no one can hear her scratching with her nails. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and she's in a tomb; she's not underground. So right, um, right, right. She's in a box. Yeah, in a stone sarcophagus. That's right. What, yeah. And then I think she manages to get out, and she's wearing this flowing white dress, and so it has some really good striking. Well, she visuals. goes, she goes mad. Right. She goes mad be, from from being locked in the box. That's right. And so she becomes kind of like the zombie, and I walked with the zombie. Exactly. Bringing back that theme, right? Yeah. Island of the Dead gave me big. I walked with a zombie uh, reprise mm-hmm. energy. And Karloff himself is. He's less dynamic here. He's playing a different character. He's playing a very... I think it's a, that a man who is on some level struggling with his humanity and sympathy versus his duty and what he knows and believes is right. But I guess... I don't think Karloff was the actor to be able to, to play off those dichotomies very clearly. He just... I don't think he really had the range. So I think this is one of his less effective roles. Yeah. I I agree. I don't really remember him super well in this film. Yeah. So it's a pretty good film. I, I enjoyed it. Um, it's fun. Once again, the elements of, I have to say, the elements of science versus like folktale yeah. and mm-hmm. metaphysical, because uh, there's the doctor and then there's someone who's saying like, oh, it's a curse. It's because of this folk story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also um, in these, uh, these, la- these last few films, we get back to kind of Luton having this theme, you know, in The Body Snatcher, the question might be, do the ends justify the means? Because the, the, the end is to learn about the body in order to treat people, in order to save lives. Right. So 
are the means of killing people to get those bodies justified? So is it the you know killing a few in order to save the many? Is that justified? And I guess the answer that we got from the movie is no. No, it's not. And then the Isle of the Dead, it's sort of like, again, you know, if I is it better for me to enforce the suffering on the few in order to save the many? And in this case, it's yes, I think. Okay, and then we've got um, Bedlam. And I think most people are, know this by now, but because it seems to be mentioned all the time, but... Bedlam was originally known as the Bethlehem, Bethlehem Hospital, and it got elided into Bedlam. And that was a place where insane people, people with mental illness, people who had emotional problems, and people who other people, powerful people, didn't like, were sent and kept incarcerated forever. I guess maybe they got out some, at some point in, if they healed. Uh, but it was pretty hard to heal in a place where they didn't know how to help people with problems. I've read some articles about Bedlam, and apparently there were times when it was bad, but it actually there were some good things about it that don't get talked about, that they really did try to help people, that it wasn't just torturing people who had mental illnesses. So I just had to, to say that. And eventually it was reformed later and became a regular kind of mental facility. But earlier in the 16, 17, 1800s, it was not only a hospital, but way before HIPAA, HIPAA laws, people could pay a shilling or a pence or whatever the cost was to go in and have a show and take a look at the loonies and laugh because it was hilarious, apparently. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to do that, to like become, become a tourist at Bedlam Mental Hospital. Yeah. Like, if you're not raised to uh, have sympathy, then it can be it can be a lot harder to, to understand and get into uh, other another person's point of view. But anyway, in Bedlam, uh, it's a, basically a situation where a independent-minded woman who's not a prostitute and not a courtesan, <laughs> right. although she must be because there's no way the rich man would be her slave essentially and pay for all her clothes and jewels. And support her if she wasn't, he wasn't getting something out of it. Yeah. So he, he keeps calling her his protege. It, yeah, his protege. Okay, sure. <laughs> she, um, she's the protege mistress of a very rich kind of stupid lord. And he is a benefactor of Bedlam, who is run by... Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff. Um, in another very creepy, scary role, who, who fancies himself to be a great poet is not getting the opportunity to write great poetry. And the young woman, she um, goes and she sees Bedlam and it's just horrible. And she has a great deal of sympathy. She ends up having a falling out with, metaphorically spits in the face of Boris Karloff. I guess it's just important for her to be feisty. I guess that's what being feisty is, is yeah. like insulting she's people. Got a, she's wantonly got a insulting contempt, people. contempt, yeah. Yeah. So essentially she has a falling out with the Lord because he's so crude and so unsympathetic and um, an incident occurs where a young man dies and he's like <laughs> laughing and thinking it's all real funny. So she bites into him and lets him have it and they have a falling out and she doesn't care. She goes back on the street with her parrot and she does a parody and a, a satire on him, on the Lord, which is not a smart idea. And she ends up being committed to Bedlam on the behest of this lord uh, to get her out of the way because he's angry with her and wants her to shut up. 
she gets in there and so Karloff then is intent on getting her to suffer. In the meantime, she has met this wonderful Quaker gentleman, very tall and handsome, but very dull and uninteresting. And she ends up being able to to convert that, that initial feeling she had of sympathy and anger into actual social action. Within the sphere of Bedlam, she actually helps people make little straw beds and combs their hair and helps mediate conflicts between them. And basically through her kindness, she begins, these people don't become sane, but their torture is lessened and they become more kind. And she kind of organizes them too. And so they're able to carry out some level of taking care of each other. And right, yeah. Social order, I guess. Exactly, exactly. It kind of creates a social order, within, a benevolent social order, where there had been a... Karloff had been actually propagating conflict and pain and had been doing some bad things. And we get a hint, even though, again, they can't say directly, that he'd been sexually abusing one particular young woman mm-hmm. in there who was catatonic. So this this conflict between good and evil, between someone who's socially active versus an autocratic, self-interested individual, would you say? Yeah, under him, the society within Bedlam is divided into these very distinct categories of, I have this type of mental illness, we're not really that mentally ill, so we're over here and we're higher in the social hierarchy and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And he would have someone like eat food off the floor and Mm -hmm. be, be a dog. So it was really very cruel. Yeah, he uses humiliation and fear and physical a lot physical coercion. Yeah, 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 and torture, physical torture even. And so essentially, um, what happens is that she foments a rebellion because uh, first of all, they want to protect her, but also for themselves, they want to take back control. And so they take back control and they get a hold of Boris Karloff and they put him on trial. What happens amazingly is that through her compassion she alights their own natural compassion and their own natural, in a way, it's the crazy people taking over the asylum and being more sane than the sane people. Right. And they adjudicate him and they say, well, based on his lights, based on his understanding, based on his role, he was doing what he was supposed to do. So he's not guilty. Which is pretty surprising. I thought that was pretty sophisticated decision-making in terms of the story. It was, but... Our egos and whatever, we can, he couldn't go free. There just wasn't a way out for that to work. Right. But they, they were allowed to have that because the young woman who had been catatonic, she had found a weapon. And as Karloff was being released, she stabbed him and killed him. So we get to have both. Yeah, we get the, the righteous uh, it was a, yeah, the, just desserts. The, yeah, the, right, the, the sense of just desserts and ooh, revenge. But we also get to have the compassion. And the, so we got to have both in, in the same film. She, oh, yeah, well, she apparently killed. That's right. She apparently killed him. He seemed dead. And in those days, they couldn't tell when anybody was dead. So they're like, oh, gosh, shit, we shit, got to get rid of the body. <laughs> oh, no, we got to get rid of the body. Or we're all going to get in trouble. So they take him into this construction area where the mason... The, uh, the good Quaker guy had been building a wall and they put him in and then they build up the wall, sort of like Edgar Allan Poe, right? They build him up in the wall and then at the last minute they see he's actually still alive. But they they wall him up in the wall anyway. <laughs> so now we have the horror element. Right. Because still now we haven't, I mean, we have the horror of human degradation degradation yeah. but we haven't had any quote-unquote horror genre stuff though so now we have this little touch 
this little drop of horror at the end. I think of the three, probably I think it's the best film. I mean, I would say the body snatcher might hang together a little bit better. Right. I like the bedlam the best. Okay. Myself. I don't know why. I guess they let her be pretty witty. She she has some good put downs for this lord. Also, it's the best Boris Karloff role because it's the most, um, it's got the most facets to it. Cause yeah. He's both, he's simpering, but he's evil and cruel and um, dominant, but kind of weak and yeah also he's he's i think it's brave for an actor like karloff even though you know he played bad guys this is one of the worst guys he's ever played i mean this guy's are like they they didn't make it i mean i think you can tell he's a rapist mm-hmm. i mean and he's he's making somebody be a dog i mean that's as bad as it gets mm-hmm. and and torturing people so i thought that was pretty brave for him to go in at 100 percent full bore i mean he doesn't hold back he's not trying to show you that this guy is nice in any way or or make any excuses for him at all right so i i, I that's why i liked it anyway yeah. i mean i understand i think body snatcher also has a it's it's a simpler story so it hangs together the themes hang together more strongly i agree with that so unfortunately though this is the very first film, even though this year was a banner year for movies and they made a lot of money, this first year that uh, Val Luton's movie did not do well. Uh. The Ghost Ship didn't do well because it didn't get released, as we talked about in a previous episode. But all of his movies made money. They all did well. Even, even Youth even Runs Wild, Wild. Okay. not great, but it, it, didn't, it didn't lose money. And this is the first movie of his that did not do well. It's surprising to me that this one I know. didn't. Because it, didn't. It, it actually follows... Sort of the formula of like comedic relief, adventure, and like. I guess the formula was getting old. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so this was a bad year. 1946 is the year this came out. It was a good year for the world in that the World War II ended. But it was very bad for Luton. First, his first movie didn't do well. Second, Char- uh, Charles Kerner, who had been his uh, mentor, who had been the person who basically believed in him and tried to. And shielded him pretty much from the studio and their pressures. He died this year. Mm. And um, they were going to do a movie of Blackbeard, do a pirate movie. That would have been fun. That would have been fun. Well, that fell through because Kerner died. And um, so it was shelved, which is pretty unfortunate. And then Luton has another heart attack, a big one this time. Yeah, it was a really, really bad heart attack. He was out, I think, six months, which is a lot for yeah. Luton. And he ended up taking quite a long time to recover. And this was the year when RKO pretty much started to go under. So they, uh, they cut Luton out, got rid of him. What happened was, uh, just very briefly, RKO was bought by Howard Hughes, who was, you know, Howard Hughes. Yeah, wasn't he an aviator? Yeah huge aviator made a lot of money in aviation and he always wanted to be a film producer and he did a few other films i won't get into the details but anyway he he was a maverick he was going to do things his own way and the studio had been making about 100 films a year and he brought it down to like making nine films a year wow i think he wanted to do prestige films only also this relates i don't want to get into details because it's tedious and long but it relates to the lawsuit of the United States government against film studios for their vertical marketing. Mm-hmm. Basically, the film studios owned their own theaters, or they fr- franchised theaters in certain theaters, and they would block book their films. So a theater owner had to book 104 films a year. 
that's two films a week. And they got what they got. So all these cheaper, maybe not very good films ended up being booked on a bill. And then they, in response, would also get Gone with the Wind. They would get the top prestige films as well. So they didn't get to pick and choose. They couldn't say, I only want to pick 104 really good films. They got what they got. And so there was a, a, an anti-monopoly, antitrust suit about this issue because all the theaters were doing it. And Howard Hughes broke ranks. And basically what the, I forget exactly what the details are, but the theaters were all um, proposing a certain defense saying, well, we can't do, you know, you can't do this because if you break this up, it will ruin us. We won't make any money. You know, you'll be destroying business. And Howard Hughes goes, oh, I can do it. So he broke ranks with the other theaters. Mm. But what happened was, is it did cause a problem with their um, their liquidity and their revenues. And RKO was the one that suffered. RKO just went right down the tubes in the oh. next few years and it was gone. So that's why we don't see any RKO movies today. Right. Because of Howard Hughes. Well, the upshot is for Val Luton is, is that there was, he didn't really have a job there anymore. So he was cut loose. So after that, he became sort of a freelance, and he managed to make connections with um, other th- studios, and he made three other films. La- the, so this is phase four, the last uh, three films of his life. And he um, started in 1948, and he went to Paramount, and he made My Own True Love. He goes to Paramount, he's hired, and it's a bigger studio, and I don't know how production exactly works. It seems like they... It's more like a jungle than it is like an organized thing where, okay, here's your job, or, you know, we're going to find out how we can use you. And so it took him 18 months. He got there, and and he kept coming up with ideas. He kept proposing things, and he couldn't get a movie off the ground for 18 (laughs) months. That sucks. I know. It really sucks, because basically he's going to lose his, um, he's going to, I mean, he's only going to lose his job. Cause, and everybody's looking at him like, well, this is a guy who can't do anything. Hmm. You know, It's very funny how quickly one's reputation is just tarnished, in, I guess maybe in the world, but certainly in the movie industry. So Luton was finally able to get uh, My Own True Love in 1948 off the ground. And it was an adaptation of a novel. And the movie ended up being apparently very sentimental. Luton did work on the script like he usually did. And usually had control from the old days. He had control over everything. Well, this time, the star, Phyllis Calvert, who, who the, you know, today, who remembers who that is? I don't, who know. even knows a Phyllis I know. anymore? <laughs> Certainly not a Calvert. She was a big enough star to be the star of the movie, but also to have pull with the executives. And she didn't like the way it had been adapted. She didn't like some of the scenes. So she went and said, if I don't get the uh, chance to rewrite and to do the way I want to, I'm not going to do the movie. And so the studio said, okay. And so Val Luton had to back down. He was sidelined and she would come in. She'd work with the writers. She'd work with the director and it became the movie she wanted it to be. I could not find any place where this movie was available, streaming or downloading. or And I wasn't going to buy a DVD of it because, you know, I think I looked at it, it was like a lot of money, like $30 or something. Even if there was one available, I'm not going to do it. So can't say whether this was any good or not, but I have to guess that it probably wasn't. So then the next film, the second to last film of Luton's career was Please Believe Me. And this film, which he did in 1950 at MGM, so he left Universal. That didn't work out. So he went to MGM. And the head of the studio's name was Dory Sherry. And Dory Sherry kind of like wanted Luton to come in. And so 
you think things are going to be all good and ended up that he gave Luton this story, please believe me, and Luton hated it. He thought it was just terrible, just schlocky and just, you know, just dumb. And Dory Sherry loved this story. So there, there you go. And he wanted Luton to adapt it. So what happened during this period is Luton goes, okay, I'll work on this stinky old movie. And then he didn't. He got together with Mark Robeson and Robert Wise, and they were going to form a company called Aspen Productions. And I talked about this early um, in the first episode, I think, where uh, let me just remind you that Robert Wise really hadn't been anybody when he started working with Luton, and he made his name working on Luton's films. And Mark Robeson hadn't even been a director. He had just been a, like an assistant or a, 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 maybe an assistant director or on production. And, but he had been like really close with Val, and they had had dinners together. He came to his house, and Luton mentored this young man, and he gave him his first film to direct. And that was right when Luton had been super successful with his uh, early films, and Turner was going to be moved up into the A-list. And the studio said, oh, well, okay, you are doing so well that we are going to move you up to the A-list. And he goes, great, he's so excited. And he says, as long as I get to pick my director, I want Mark Robeson, because he had promised Mark that the next time he needed a director, he would let Mark have his chance to, to begin directing. And the studio said, no way, this guy's never directed, we are not giving him an A movie to do, it's just not going to happen. And Luton said, okay, then I won't move up to the A list. And so the next film that Luton did was The Seventh Victim, and Mark Robeson did direct that. And he became a really super famous Oscar-winning director <laughs> based on this, this support he got from Val Luton. Well, now we are near the, uh, Val Luton's having a rough time. He's really excited that he's going to get to work with these two directors in their own production company so they'll make their own movies their own way and so he began to work just like crazy on projects on writing up and coming up with concepts and scripts and things for projects that he could do with Aspen Productions and he pretty much ignored please believe me. So this again this is 1950 and what happens is he has a meeting at least this is from what I've read, he has a meeting with uh, the two men and they talk about what they're going to do. And these guys, what they wanted to do was socially conscious movies and they wanted to make a civil rights movie. And Luton is saying to them, great, I'm all for it, but you're not getting your uh, money for it. And it's going to take you years to raise the money because this is not the kind of movie that studios are going to finance because it's not a moneymaker. You know, it's an important film. We should do it, but it's not a moneymaker. So what we should do first is, here, I've got a whole briefcase full of movie ideas that will make money. We'll make a bunch of money. It will be our money. And then we can make whatever we want. No one will have any control. And, you know, so basically we can make this movie much faster. And they're going, no, the re we're doing all these movies for the studios. We're doing all these kinds of movies. We only want to make this movie. And so they had a conflict, and so Luton goes, okay, fine, I'll go with that, even though he didn't agree with it. So on <laughs> the day of his daughter's wedding, he gets delivered to him by a lawyer a document saying that he's out of Aspen Productions, and they didn't talk to him or anything. Jeez, that sucks. What a betrayal. I know, it really he was. He put so much on the line for Robeson. And he, they said, you know, we know you weren't going to let it go. We knew you really weren't going to go our way. And I think basically 
maybe it was just he's the older guy and they just didn't want the 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 dynamic just wasn't working for them i still think it's a betrayal i think it was more than just that that thing but that's what they said it but there was maybe a fundamentally different viewpoint. And what's interesting is the first movie that Aspen Productions made, I don't remember what it was. It was a socially conscious movie, but it wasn't a civil rights movie. Huh. Luton was right. Didn't achieve their ends, yeah. Yeah, Luton was right. And I think there was some reapproachment later. I think that Robeson did apologize, and uh, or at least he did acknowledge, and I don't think Robert Wise ever did. So that was really sad. And uh, Please Believe Me is a shipboard romance, uh, romantic comedy about a woman who's pretending to be rich when she isn't and uh, two men vying for her, you know, it's all right. Yeah. Comedy of errors, people running around and setting champagne bottles out and covering up trunks and yeah, whatever. (laughs) Covering up trunks. I don't know. (laughs) Doing quick changes of clothing. and And so please believe me that he really didn't work very hard on. We have Deborah Carr. And Deborah Carr's a really good actor. I like her a lot. She's in uh, Black Narcissus, mm, yeah, which you saw recently, yeah. and she was in uh, um, an Affair to Remember with Cary Grant, and mm. a big star and beautiful, very elegant English woman. And she stars in this movie with Robert Walker and Mark Stevens, who most people don't even remember, plus Peter Lawford, who is kind of part of the Kennedy group. The male actors are so-so. Anyway, she's a um, a young woman uh, in England who uh, hears that she inherited a uh, a ranch in, in in Texas. Right. So she's picturing this gigantic ranch with heads Fields. of steer and you know acres of land, and that she's rich. We know from the beginning is that it's a old rickety kind of shack, not worth anything. But this she had been corresponding with this old guy because she was nice and kind of a pen pal deal and. And the only person who gave him any attention, he just gave her the ranch. And um, on, on board the ship is a guy who basically, he thinks she's rich, so he's trying to snare her for a wife. And then there's Peter Lawford, who plays a playboy, perfect. A playboy, a louche, very louche. He's like, he's like the definition of louche. His picture is in the, def, in the dictionary next to louche playboy and he's trying to uh, get her to marry him uh, not for her money but because he's you know attracted to her and thinks she's beautiful but he's always doing that he's always finding women always falling in love always trying to marry them and always having to pay a lot of money to get out of it that's i mean i think that's all we need to say it's really not follows a standard formula and so um he thought it stank i thought it was okay yeah i wasn't like bored watching it yeah i mean you could like do your ironing and stuff while you're watching the movie it's not it's not riveting it was mildly pleasant and then we hit uh luton's final film of his career and uh, of his life which was apache drums which he did for universal his nemesis in 1951 and this is a western i mean it's so interesting yeah he really spun out at the end into different worlds and yeah really lose sight of him and it was an interesting western again it was it was different yeah i don't think he had a lot to do with it i don't think he was well frankly it was a western where most of it took place with people under siege in a church so it took place in this one room church with the indians trying to get in right jumping leaping through the high windows and right. stuff and and the and the men you know and the women fighting and that's all i kind of remember Okay, it was a little bit different than a Western in terms of the Native Americans in the film. They are portrayed like you don't see very much of them. They're very dangerous. They're, uh, you know, scalping people. 
But at the same time, it makes an acknowledgement at the beginning about their water running out and how they were like having a being pushed to the reser- uh, uh, off the land that they're already on mm-hmm. into a, a reservation where they don't want to go. Yeah, you're right. It does point out that this conflict and this aggression is coming from an injustice. Which yeah, isn't to say it's a good movie or anything, but. right? <laughs> and and there's you know and and the guy who ends up emerging as a the hero is a gambler who nobody in town likes, but he ends up stepping up and becoming the hero of the whole thing. And I'm looking at this cast and I'm just going, I mean, you'll see a few familiar faces and that you'll go, okay, I think I've seen that face before. But I mean, Stephen McNally, Colleen Gray, Willard Parker. I mean, who the hell are these people? (laughs) I mean, I know who they are because I watch these old movies, but really today they're, this is no treasure Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart or anything like that that everybody knows about so that's pretty much uh pretty much that's his last film and it's 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 really really sad um and from this point on he he just suddenly dies I mean he would have kept on trying to make movies trying to get funding and it ended up being that he um dies of a heart attack he dies of a heart attack in the hospital very sad and then um his daughter Nina ended up marrying and you know, living a nice life with a husband. And, and then his son, Val Jr., ends up becoming a painter, and he designs museum exhibitions, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. To and, pass that on. Yeah, and a lot of the information we have about Val Luton, his neuroses and his dog puke tie and all that come from Val Jr. <laughs> so uh, that's the end of, uh, of our saga with uh, Val Luton. I don't know. I think one of the things that, that always intrigued me about him is his name. Val Luton. I don't know. It just seems you would never say just Val yeah. or Luton. You always say Val Luton. It, it's a it's a brand unto itself. It is. It sounds good together. Even though that's of course not the name he was born with. It's a his mother's maiden name and the short shortened Val, Vladimir. So I guess we'll. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say on wrap up, or shall we just talk about our our favorites? I think we can pretty much get into it. I mean, yeah, as you've noted. You know, he wasn't as complex or fascinating a character as a Marlena Dietrich or a Marilyn Monroe. Um, but his career, it's very interesting looking at his career because a lot happened. Well, and a lot of his his intricacy as a person comes out through his films, mm-hmm. especially the early films. And watching it from beginning to end, it I mean, you do see a trajectory in his creative energy. And you do see, as we pointed out, a certain themes or tropes that he had in every film you know i said before like i think the restrictions that he had under rko might have kind of helped him craft a film but at the same time i really wish i could have seen the film he would make if he had a a huge budget and all the freedom he wanted well and if he had jacques turner right to me the films he did with turner were the best turner was able to bring something out so you know i would say my favorite movie, I think we agree, number one, that you should see if you're going to watch one, I Walked with the Zombie, correct? I you agree. agree. Yeah. So that's number one. And then I say, and I think you agree, number two. Black Cat. Cat, cat People. Cat People. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cat People. Yeah. I was reading. <laughs> yeah, I definitely um, definitely think that that's, that's a great one. Then. For all the reasons we talked about, won't go into it in detail, just you, you've heard about us talking on our first episode, so... Cat people. So you're going to, only going to watch two, and if you're only going to watch three, I say the ghost ship because I find that fascinating. I find it. I think the reason I like it, what drew, drew me in ultimately, 
is this man being on a ship, so he's isolated, with someone who is stalking him, where he's in danger, but no one is really listening to him. And the one particular image of all is him going in to go to sleep and he can't lock his door. I have dreams like that, Hmm. where it's, it's like I'm in the house and the locks don't work and the doors won't close. And to me, that that just elicited my own dream life in such a way. So that's why I like that one. I think that's a really good pick. And my choice was The Seventh Victim, which I think is maybe a more classic opinion um, in Valoon's canon. It just struck me as so different. And there's a lot of visual moments that stick in my mind. Yeah, I liked the foray into this completely like metaphysical life and death existential what what is this film i'm not really sure even though it's about a cult yeah it's it's weird in a really unique and fascinating way yeah it's got that good kind of weird yeah it's a it's a little bit haruki murakami since we've been thinking about him a lot you know the the woman who keeps the room who rents the room (laughs) empty except for a chair and a noose hanging over it like so she can always go and get in touch with her mortality yeah (laughs) She knows that she's in control <laughs> of her life and death. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, Murakami or or even Mishima. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, so that is uh, I think our wrap up. Is there anything else you think we need to say, or anything else we should recommend, or other than you know what we have throughout the? I think we were pretty thorough on going through all the movies. So anybody who listens will know whether they piqued their interest based on any of the descriptions we gave. Yeah. So. And if you watch any of these or, or, you know, have any opinions or thoughts about what your favorite is, we'd love to hear from you at our email address is foiblespodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. We got a couple of emails from people who listen to the podcast and it was really exciting. Yeah. It was really fun. We'd love to hear from you guys. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Great.